1: Scholar, hunter, carpenter, and community server. Today's episode is about opening up to the world and to the self and attempting to connect the two in the pursuit of meaningful life. In sharing his story, Eric takes us along in a reflection on how to be vulnerable and to dig deep in the pursuit of oneself. How to be equally a scholar, hunter, carpenter, community server, and more. How does he find the balance between service for others and care for the self? How has he integrated his part-time academic self to his other selves? And how does he monitor his own biases within his academic endeavors? Listen to the episode to hear more about it. At the end of this introduction, I would like to offer a trigger warning, as our conversation touches on trauma, including intergenerational trauma, suicide and mental health. We are very grateful to Eric for his honesty and gentleness in navigating this space. But nevertheless, we want to give you the option to to step out of this space if this, these topics are not something you would like to engage with. Just like all this, we hope you enjoy it.
0: Hi, friends. We are here today with Eric Garza. Hi, Eric.
2: How are you doing? Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy. I'm actually in a kind of a quieter space. Uh, I normally juggle the podcast plus many other volunteer projects next to a full time job, and this week I'm um, uh, in, on a holiday, so I am slowing down, which is wonderful. Yeah. How about you? I
2: my my schedule ebbs and flows. I would say right now it is flowing. It's been a fairly busy week and. You know, in addition to teaching in a university, I also do a lot of other odd jobs for people. Uh, there's a gentleman who lives down my street who is recovering from cancer, so I've been helping him with a lot of yard work. So this is a busy time of year for that sort of thing. Uh, just kind of cleaning everything up and trying to get his yard ready for winter. Um, oh. Yeah, so it's I, I'm I'm busy this week, busier than I would normally be, but. But, but not
0: me. busy in front of the screen, right? <laughs>
2: no, I am not. This is a this is a a, a realm of quiet in between busyness.
0: Nice. Um, now, Eric, um, I want to jump us right into our question and and ask you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your path. How how did you come to be to where you are today? Um, engaged with the topics that you are engaged with, and was that. Something that happened to you, or was something that you mindfully steer towards based on something?
2: Um, I, I would say necessarily it's a mix of both. So, like, I went. My undergraduate degree was in ecology and evolution, and then my master's was in environmental science. One of them was in environmental science, and my doctorate was in natural resources. And so, there's like that particular academic path. That introduced me to a certain type of scholarship, but there's other another parallel path that I was walking at the same time as I was, you know, doing all the rigorous academic work. And part of that started. And I, I don't know how you how you approach like personal stuff, but there's there's some personal stuff involved that I'm going to mention that I think is integral to this story, mm. and so. Uh, maybe some trigger warnings are in order, but uh, I I think it was a couple of years before I finished my undergrad, I actually attempted suicide. I I was not in a good place for a lot of reasons. And if you want to go into those, we can. But as I was recovering from that, I came to the realization that the way that I was living my life and kind of my life trajectory was just not going to work. And so that was one of the things, I was probably 22, 21, 22 at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the things that made it clear to me that although I had this intellectual interest in ecology, evolution, and and science, uh, there were other things that I needed to augment my path with uh, that uh, basically were going to allow me to Pursue that interest and stay alive. Um, and so at that time, I also started exploring. I guess today, I didn't think of it this way at the time, but today we would kind of wrap it up as like new age spirituality. So, like mm. meditation, I was part of a Zen practice group for a number of years. Uh, yoga, martial arts, other body movement style approaches. And also as a result of some of the people that I met in the Zen practice group, I also started learning what at the time we would call primitive skills, but the the wording I would choose to use for that today is is different. Um, I I would think of those as like place-based skills. And that brought me in contact with a lot of people that I would think of as, as survivalists. Mm-hmm. You know, people who thought for various reasons the world was going to end soon, and so they were trying to prepare themselves uh, for that ending. They're preparing themselves to survive that ending mm-hmm. with the various skills that they were amassing, and a lot of these people were people of uh, European descent, and so amassing those skills involved basically a lot of cultural appropriation on their part, you, uh learning, specific styles and adopting specific styles, for example, of flitnapping and making Mm. wooden hunting bows and fire by friction and just like a whole long list. So that was where I kind of like started following those two parallel paths. There was an Mm. academic, intellectual, scholarly path that I continued on after that suicide attempt. But there's also this other parallel path that involved uh, what I would consider today place-based skills. And um kind of meditation techniques, body awareness techniques, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And sorry for interjecting just for a while, but I, w- I just I just feel called to ask you a question because yep. I find it fascinating the way one, how open, and thank you for your openness and vulnerability. Um I know there are many academics listening that might be listening to us right now and I myself went down um, a similar path of of almost like um, being in academia and, and being rewarded for the way your brain is able to sort through concepts and things and create lines of logic really fast. And at the same time, feeling inside that something is wrong, that you are kind of crumbling, that your brain is there is a part of you that just you cannot reconcile with that kind of structured way of producing and and my unraveling happened in a different way, but it was it was also a form of unraveling um, that actually brought me in the same kind of path of Buddhism and Zen and spirituality and and closer to more natural um, laws. Of, of structure, but I am sorry, uh, then I will ask my question, but that um, for me, it took me quite a while to look at those two paths of not parallel, but actually blending into each other and making me a more complete also scientist. I'm, I'm not sure how at the time that you were kind of exploring these two paths, was it for you, did you see them as different? Did you see them as intersecting or how how did you experience them at the time?
2: I think at the time, I saw them as separate. Mm. I saw one of them as developing my, my thinking capacity, logic, mm. reason. And I saw mm. the other as uh, basically coping strategies. Mm. Like if I'm going to continue developing myself intellectually, that is that looking back on it, that approach caused harm. It caused mm. me emotional harm and it caused me bodily harm. I did not recognize it as such because I was surrounded by people who treated it as the right thing to do. yeah, and so that parallel track that I developed was basically a coping mechanism that allowed me to continue enduring the emotional and the body harm, bodily harm that the academic world inflicted.: Yeah, so I, I would say that I viewed them as like I can, I can say I view them as separate. But they went together; they were inseparable. Mm-hmm. If I was going to continue down the intellectual path and endure that emotional and bodily harm without attempting suicide again, I would have to do it in a different way than I did before. And adopting those additional coping mechanisms is what I is it was a survival strategy.
0: Yeah. And how does how did that evolve for you?
2: Well, one of so actually this this is a a good so there's another piece of the story that comes later and maybe this is a good place to tell that so when I was finishing up my doctoral work uh, well when I started my doctoral program I think this was in 2007 this was about the same time that my dad was diagnosed with cancer and and uh, your, your listeners probably don't uh, have the have a video of me but I look like your stereotypical white guy but I'm actually biracial my dad, was uh, what we would call him, I guess, Hispanic, but he was a mix of European descent, Basque, and indigenous. His mother was an indigenous woman from uh, northern Mexico. So I grew up in a biracial family, and my dad was not white passing. But he he was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. And then around the time that I uh, uh, finished my doctorate, I finished, I think, in May and graduated. And then he died in October of that same year. And I flew home to visit him, I think, in September. And I didn't realize he was going to die in like a month, but I flew home to visit him in September. And while he and I were alone in the house, you know, he was bedridden most of the time, um, I asked him because I had a sense that he was on a downhill slope. And I think he had that sense too. But I asked him, Like, have you, you know, you're thinking back over your life, you know, do you think you've had a pretty good life? And I acknowledge I asked him that question for purely selfish reasons. You know, I wanted him, thinking back on it, I wanted him to confirm that this goal of working 40 hours a week for umpteen years is a reasonable goal. Mm Um, but he was surprised that I asked the question. It took him a few seconds to respond. And then the floodgates opened. And he basically acknowledged that he harbored enormous amounts of resentment. And he did not think that he had made good decisions. Some of those resentments were at me because I was uh, not an expected child. I was an unintended pregnancy And it was because of my pregnancy that he and my mom actually settled down and got married. And then, of course, he had to get a job and support this family and all that stuff. But it was a lot for me to handle. And of course, he died less than a month later. And so as I was processing all of that, one of the things I realized was that this whole idea of of working like a 40 hour week or more uh, destroys people. And I always knew that my dad harbored a lot of anger and misery. I knew that, uh, but it never occurred to me to ask him why. And then when he told me why, it's like, oh, how can I live my life so that when I'm on my deathbed, if some young person, maybe my own kid, asked me if I had a good life, I don't have to dish out on him, on them. The same way that my dad did for me and so that inspired me to kind of rethink how i would make a living and um you know the question that you originally posed was about like i guess one way i make sense of it is like moving forwards and i think after that whole ordeal happened with my dad and he passed away and i you know, took some time to make sense of that whole thing, right? I I came to the realization that if I was going to be useful in the world, I needed to find a way to do it and to show other people that it can be done without destroying ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and not only like, how do I make a living without destroying myself, but how do I, how do I undertake intellectual pursuits and scholarly development? Without destroying myself, because I was not actively involved in a Zen meditation group by 2011. I think I had grown out of that stage and was able. I would say, and maybe you would differ on this, but I was able to see uh, some of the coping strategies that Buddhism taught. Um, maybe for the the colonial, uh, the colonial tools that they are, and. So I I was exploring and expanding beyond some of the coping strategies that kept me going earlier.
0: Mm. And were you at the time still involved in academia, like actively? I was, I was a
2: doctoral student. I was a doctoral student until May. And then I uh, started teaching at the same university I graduated Mm. from in fall of that year. Mm. So that that fall of 2011 was my first year as a part-time faculty member. And I, re- I, I resisted attempting to get a full-time gig because I knew that that would just destroy me. Uh, so mm. it was a, a part-time endeavor and I've never desired to be anything else.
0: Mm. Okay. And, and what, how, is your, um, how is your time filled in today? Like uh, still, as you mentioned, part-time teaching. Like, what, what, what do you teach? Like what, uh, what topics?
2: It varies. I teach a lot of courses related to food systems Mm. at the University of Vermont. I think that is my bread and butter, so to speak, in terms of the courses that I offer. Uh, I may teach a course in spring on decolonizing food systems. That'll be for the graduate college.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I've also done I've also taught some broader environmental science and environmental studies type courses. And I'll do a course on climate adaptation for and I've taught for other colleges besides mm-hmm. University of Vermont. You know there's a number of different colleges i've I've taught at, and this coming spring, I'll teach a course on climate adaptation for St. Michael's College, which is a small private college nearby
0: yeah and and with the rest of your time, uh, I know I am I've been your student in some of your offerings, but I Maybe you can share a little bit with our listeners. What are your other projects that you're involved in next to the the teaching part?
2: Yeah. So there's the teaching within accredited academic institutions. There's also the teaching outside of accredited institutions. So I founded Quilbert Academy in August of 2020, uh, basically as a way of teaching whatever I want. In whatever format i want to teach it and being able to offer courses at a reasonable cost as opposed to like in the united states it's hundreds or thousands of dollars to take a college course if someone wanted to do that but with poet academy i can i can make those more accessible and then i do a variety of other things Uh, i do a fair amount of of mentoring of people in place-based skills i um And and you and I were chatting before we started recording. You know, I also just to balance the scholarly stuff that I do with stuff that's more hands on, I actually really enjoy doing like carpentry projects Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes yard work projects for people in my community. And, uh, you know, the pay is not as good as I get at the university, but I find it. In moderation I find it to be fairly fulfilling work.
0: Yeah. And Eric how has your academic environment responded to um, no how you have chosen to 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 teach and 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 learn? Yeah. Or I don't Yeah.
2: Um, I guess it depends a little bit on what exactly you mean by how they respond. Uh, I am generally treated with a lot of respect. I I think my course evaluations speak for themselves when (coughs) faculty members look at those. And certainly students that I've had regard me uh, highly. I I have a number of students who I've become friends with beyond their graduation dates and we've stayed in touch sometimes for six, eight, 10 years Mm -hmm. beyond when they graduate. Uh, Interestingly enough, I, I i've taken a hiatus on this for right now because of the pandemic and also because of a an injury that i'm nursing in in one of my ankles but um prior to the pandemic i was uh i enjoyed boxing not sparring and like beating people down but using boxing as a as a as a movement practice mm. and as a way of of staying physically active and one of my coaches for my boxing endeavors, was actually a former student of mine in that very first class that I taught after I graduated. So my first course is a part-time instructor. She's an no. amateur boxer. And she does environmental consulting too. That is her day job, if you will. But yeah, she she was my boxing coach for a while. It was, it was kind of a fun juxtaposition for us.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think it's um. I think it's really nice the way you kind of combine um, the more like head type of work with um, with your other interests, and and I think I, I I I can only assume, but or maybe I'm wrong if you tell me that you also don't feel like that type of intellectual pressure to produce um, to the same extent that other people might feel inside of the apparatus of academia. I I myself constantly have to guard myself against it. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah how 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 do you manage to to escape that inner critic or or maybe you you don't <laughs> Yeah so I,
2: I I'm a lecturer and the way things work in my university is that lecturers just teach we don't we're not mm-hmm. expected to publish so and that is part of my rationale for not wanting to do you know become a full-time mm-hmm. tenure track uh faculty member, because when you start doing the tenure track thing, you do have that expectation to publish. Mm. And as a lecturer, I am am basically graded on my ability as an instructor, and I don't have all the other pressures that go along with university employment as a faculty. Mm. And so that is one of the reasons why I gravitate to this particular way of doing things is because you know, I've written articles for journals before. I'm not saying I'll never do it. Maybe I'll do it again if there's a really uh, solid reason for me to. But I don't get a lot out of it personally. Mm. It's, it just seems like it is, it's, a, it's a high input, low value proposition in my mind. Mm. Input in terms of effort and labor. I and mean, the only okay. ones who benefit from that are the companies that own the journals. They're among some of the most profitable companies in the world.
0: You seem to me listening to you talk about your life and your choices, that you, you are very much driven by your inner sense of ethics and justice and what you think is healthy for you as individual and the things that fuel you and, and push you forward. Um, and, and at the same time, you you have, you chose projects that that are anchored in service, you know, service towards others. Um, so, but I, I wonder... Uh, are those two concepts kind of, have you found a way to merge them together or does the balance never tip for you on, on the side of service versus things that are healthy for you as an individual? I would say that
2: I like, and this is a, a horribly overused term, but I'm going to use mm. it anyway, but I like balance. You know, I, I, I recognize, like there's this, this interplay between the individual and the community. Mm. The community needs us to invest labor in it if it's going to stay healthy. But if people are going to be able to invest that labor over the longer term, the individual needs to stay healthy too. So what I try to do as best I'm able, and I'm always learning how better to do this, oftentimes by making mistakes, is I try to uh, care for myself enough that I'm able to invest what I think I need to invest into my community. So yes, there are a lot of service projects, and also there's self-care and I, I, I try to do both. And sometimes I err on the side of too much self-care and I start to think of myself as being a bit lazy. And sometimes I err on the side of service and I realize I'm starting to burn out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah, that is a, a good question. And it is a, a place of learning and also a place of experimentation for me.
0: Yeah. And, and can you give me what are some of the signals that you have with yourself to realize when you move um, in one side or the other?
2: Yeah. Well, it, I, I notice that when I move too far towards service. I feel resentment, like mm-hmm. I can do something that I know is helpful for someone. And I notice that sense of resentment against them in the same way that my dad expressed resentment against me, you know, Mm -hmm. when when he and I had that conversation before he died. So as soon as I feel that resentment, it's like, okay, stop. What's going on here? Where is this coming from? Is this like a temporary stochastic thing? Or is this more systemic in my Mm -hmm. experience of the world right now? And if this is more systemic, what needs to change so that this can be relaxed and alleviated? Mm -hmm. And then, like I said before, that feeling of laziness mm. if I if I gravitate too far towards uh, self-care, and I'm just like sitting around all day watching Netflix, you know eating, eating ice cream, it's like, yeah, I feel nice and relaxed. This is all good. And then this you know, you know we, we can think of it as like the inner critic mm. but I, I, I find the inner critic to be really valuable sometimes. And the inner critic will will say, you lazy bum, get up and do something. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, okay, is that, is that episodic or is that systemic? You know, is this, that, is this, is that critic just telling me that I'm a lazy bum this one moment and then it goes away? Or is it, is this, does a critic feel the need to say this over and over again all day long over the course of multiple days? And if it's the latter, it's like, okay, okay. Time to, time to get off your bum, Eric. And, and, (laughs) get back to work
0: it seems like you have quite a healthy relationship and intimacy with your inner critic i
2: do i I, there's a lot of parts of me that um i i've come to embrace for what they for what they tell me and also uh yeah just for the acknowledgement that at the end of the day they're trying to protect me they're trying to keep me safe
0: yeah so Wonderful. Now, Eric, I want to take us into a different part of inquiry, which maybe it's not that different, but i I've, I've, uh, looking into how you've built your career and your interest, there seems to be this kind of con, um, interest in, or experience in both the natural sciences and also the social sciences. And um, I'm curious how how has this, how has this kind of dwelling into the natural sciences influenced um, the way you look at social sciences? and the way you and maybe the way you engage with the space of science in general in both your academic teaching and outside.
2: Yeah. That's a wonderful question. And I, you know, maybe this is not what you are expecting or what you want, but my take is that I actually have a hard time like I understand in our modern silo university that the natural science is over, over here and the social science is over here but I have a hard time discerning really the significant difference between those two. I mean, certainly they use different methods because they're asking different questions, but ultimately they're both looking for evidence to test various hypotheses. And because they both do that thing, it's hard for me to put the same kind of like solid uh, barrier between them that I feel like many people do. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would say that I was trained in both like my undergrad and my, uh, master's degree were pretty solidly natural science. And then my doctorate was studying ecological economics. Mm -hmm. So not as much natural science, although some ecological economists, uh, do some natural science, but a lot of economics, statistics, that kind of stuff.
0: Now, I, 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 one thing that that struck me as a difference between the two worlds, while I also kind of I'm starting to dabble more into the natural sciences, is the the relationships of power that exist between humans and non-humans, and how those relationship of power and ideology affect the type of theories that get constructed. Um, I, I agree with you that in the methods of natural or social sciences, they're not that different, but in this fundamental assumption of how they position the human versus the non-human, um, now I, I find that quite different. And if we move towards indigenous science, that that kind of difference becomes even more intense. Um, and I know that you are also, um, in much more advanced than me in exploration of indigenous sciences. So I, I wonder if you could maybe comment on that a little bit. I can try. My my,
2: I would say my understanding of all of that is biased by the fact that I have indigenous heritage. And I think of, you know, it, it, I would hesitate to use the word indigenous science. I almost think of science as something of an epithet. But like indigenous people were using, were testing hypotheses by gathering evidence for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years before, you know, whatever Europeans started laying the foundation of science, Mm -hmm. you know, air quotes Mm -hmm. around that. And so... There is, I would say, a very robust methodology that is probably mm. written in our genes, if not, then certainly in our epigenome. Mm. And then on top of that, we have layered these more recent constructs where uh, kind of intrinsic to those constructs is, are some of these hierarchies that you alluded to. Mm. You know, the idea that uh, animals are above plants, and deserving of more moral consideration. Mm -hmm. And then human beings are above everything and deserving of even more moral uh, consideration. And then men are above women, people who Mm -hmm. are light complected with very little melanin in their skin are higher than people who have more melanin in their skin, et cetera, et cetera. Mm So I, I think that, and I, 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 my, I'm in a book group, and tomorrow night we're going to talk about an amazing book. I don't know if you can get it in Europe. It's called The Next Great Migration. I'd have to look up the author because I lent my copy to one of my friends. But in that book, one of the things that the author does, she's from India, is she explores the fierce racial overtones Mm. that permeate the origins of what we today think of as science, like Linnaeus and a lot of his ideologies that Mm. went into his binomial nomenclature, you know, Darwin Mm. and his formulation of Mm. uh, evolution as, as it is articulated in natural science circles. And even like John Muir and and Ralph Waldo Emerson and all of those who kind of laid the foundations for the modern environmental movement and environmental sciences and the racial overtones that they had. But I I see that more modern social construct of quote-unquote science as being ultimately a product of and a tool of you know various supremacy type ideals. I, I see them as part of the colonial endeavor. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I find I find that wonderful what you're saying. And I and I wanted to just ask a question. Like, how do you um, how do you bring other scholars into your own sense making process to make sure that you you kind of I want to say decolonize your own scientific mind, but, but I, I think it's maybe the wrong way to say this, but. But to kind of to kind of make sure that the way you sense into science, the way you add onto theories or contribute into into the body of science um, is one that doesn't replicate this, um, this mechanics of supremacy, white supremacy. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I
2: think I do it, first of all, cautiously. Because. Mm-hmm. I have less job security as a part-time instructor than I would if I were tenured or or tenure track even. And so I am very conscious of the fact that if I push too hard and become seen as a rebel rouser, that the path of least resistance for the university is just to give me the Mm axe. And I've watched them do that with a number of people who maybe not on the decolonization realm, but who've pushed too hard with respect Mm -hmm. to other things, you know, their, their contracts are just quietly not renewed and they're given all kinds of accolades and thank you for your contributions to the university and now disappear. And so I'm very cautious and I, I I think this is one of the reasons why I gravitate away from the kind of writing and the kind of scholarship that is destined for peer-reviewed journals because that is where my sense making is, put into the most conflict with, you know, kind of this quote unquote science Mm. and its colonial endeavors. And why I gravitate more towards, uh, maybe not alternative, but but, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Popular media production. And like, I've got the inklings of a documentary film. Mm in my head that I've been churning for a while. I just started the Quillwood podcast. I've I've done other podcasts in the past. Mm. And, you know, I occasionally write articles, not necessarily for a blog. They're longer, too long, really, for a blog. But, you know, so so I release material that way, Mm. mostly, Mm. because I can direct it towards the audiences where it will do more good. And quite frankly, a lot of, Academics that I interact with—not all—I'm making a generalization here—but uh, many of them are fiercely close-minded people. Like, you can talk about decolonization and write your papers on decolonization, but to them, it's this abstract idea that is just written about in, you know, a handful of, of peer-reviewed journals. It's—it's it's not something that affects them. It's not something that they want to have affect them. And it's something that they like to be able to turn on and off as a function of their comfort level. So um, it's not like that for me. You know, I, I think partly because of my heritage, but also my life experience has made it so like, nope, nope, you 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 turn that on and you, you turn it up to 11 and that's how you live.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. And and Eric, where do you find your teachers? What what type of scholars or figures, or maybe they're not even people? You know, I I remember uh, reading this wonderful um, uh, newsletter that you have with Kilwit where you talk about the lessons that you learn from. Was it a fox? Yeah, that was the most recent one. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, now, who are your teachers? Well, I mean,
2: my teachers are a lot of things. Uh, you know, like you mentioned already, you and I are—and I don't remember if you mentioned this when we were recording or before—but you and I are both in a course that is put on by Bayo Kamlafe. His uh, mm-hmm. "We Will Dance with Mountains" course. Mm-hmm. And you know, people like Bayo, oftentimes who are previously had previously been involved in university settings, but have seen enough of the drawbacks that they have felt. Inspired to escape, uh, and there's a lot of other people that I look to for teaching who have never been involved in in university settings. And you know, some of them are indigenous, have indigenous heritage, but not all. You know, I think there are a lot of brilliant people out there who are of partial or entire Europe, entirely European descent, and just their life experiences are such that they make sense of the world in a very different way. In in, in a way that I find to be very useful. And then, you know, like you alluded to, always being open to learning from the other than human world, because I feel like there are many opportunities to do that. Um, You know, I I do have a newsletter that I put out through Quillwood, I have the Quillwood podcast, and in the Quillwood podcast episode that will be coming out next week, I'll tell a story of an experience I had with an oven bird. I don't know if you have these in Europe, but it's a a small-ish songbird, maybe midway between the size of a robin, American Mm. robin, and a chickadee. And they tend to live in deep forests. They're they're not an edge-oriented species like some other small birds are. Mm. But I I hunt, and so a number of years ago, I was out hunting deep in a forest and I had this oven bird approach me, just like jumping from branch to branch, and it saw me and i saw it we made eye contact and it was very uh curious in the sense that it wouldn't leave so it was just like hopping around probably 15 18 inches away from me on different branches and i i started getting this this kind of i don't even know if i w- if i would call it a sensation but like this um sense that it was asking me a question. And the question that came to me from it was, what are you doing? (laughs) But it was, it was not this, what are you doing as in human being? Why are you here hunting in my territory? It was, it was directed at, at me as a human and thinking about what's growing on in the world more broadly. Like, what are your people doing? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? And so as I like sent impressions out, trying to clarify its question and it responded and there's this back and forth, you know, eventually I got the sense that it was, it was curious like why we were on this treadmill that is leading us to gobble up the world. And as I was, you know, pondering how to answer that question. uh, And right before it left, because a hawk came into the area and it had no interest in being around there anymore, it it just acknowledged, uh, we want you back. As in to say like the human species at a time in history was known as a, a, a people that contributed to the landscape in a positive way. And to that ecosystem in a positive way, and that oven bird wanted that person back, so that's a you know that that story will come out in in this next podcast and the next newsletter. But yeah, animals and not just animals. Uh, I've had interactions with plants that have been very inspiring too, but I, I think that we can look to the other than human world as teachers if we're willing to Invest the time learning to be sensitive to their messages again. Yeah, and and I and I think it's important to say before I, I give you space to respond to that that this is not about kind of like silly New Agey practices of like taking on an animal as your spirit animal or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I I I am very confident as someone who's been trained in in natural sciences that there's more going on here than just like my brain imparting peculiar suggestive, yeah, yeah, projecting things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that as human beings who grow up in the developed world and the industrial world, part of our socialization involves closing off our sensory channels to a lot of information and a lot of stimulation that might interfere with us becoming productive cogs in someone else's machine. And I think that the more we are willing to uh, extract ourselves from that machine, it creates space for us to open those sensory channels again, learn how to do that. And then we can start relearning uh, what it is to be human. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that the industrial world works very, very hard to squeeze that out of us. It has to to perpetuate itself.
0: Yeah, wonderful. I I think it's it's so um, needed to sit more in these spaces of contemplation and sensing, rather than as you so wonderfully call it, this kind of treadmill of of of, of seeking production, production or engaging, engaging in so. Yeah, I was, um, was it last week that I was I was uh, reading a book on contemplation and um, the contemplation in the 19th century and, and how, you know, scholars and academics used to sit in spaces of silence to, they used meditation and contemplation as a form of deepening theories of intellectual inquiry, of sensing into the environment for answers, for connections. And I saw, was it a few months ago, a documentary on Netflix about, um, it was about, oh, who did the black hole um, theory? Oh, it's Jared Hawking? Yeah. Oh, I had such a... Now, it was a documentary that talked about black holes, and, and it was the last uh, m- new movie that he appeared in because he actually died midway through the documentary. But in that documentary, you have these scholars that are advancing a certain modelling around the black hole theory, and they spend, like, weeks in this kind of remoted cabin in the woods, and the documentary follows them as they walk through the woods discussing and sensing into that forest environment. And I just found that so beautiful Um, now. And this is what um, I think I I definitely do not look at the things that you talk about as new age practices, but like very powerful tools of sensing into the world around us um, and creating meaning, you know? Yep. Yeah, um I have um I was thinking what type of question to ask you now that we're nearing the end of this recording. And I found something very interesting as as me and my team were, were researching your body of work, um uh, Eric, um, that you have developed a critique of the concept of the Anthropocene. And you coined a term trauma scene um, in conversation to it. So I'm I'm very curious uh if you can tell me a little bit more about that. Um uh, yeah. Sure. And I want to first say that I,
2: as an individual, really deve- didn't develop that critique of the Anthropocene that I put forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have put forward similar critiques as well as other critiques of the framing of Anthropocene. And the, the critique is basically that when you formulate this term Anthropocene, it is uh, basically saying that humans are. The dominant geological force in the world, and we're basically wrecking the place, you know, in a nutshell. And what it fails to account for is the fact that not, actually not all humans have played a big role in this. It's a very particular ancestral lineage of people uh, who eventually developed a suite of habits and then spread those habits around the world throughout their colonial endeavors. So, to call it Anthropocene, I think, is, is blame shifting. It's, it's totally blame shifting. And, that, and that's the critique that I offer in the, the Trauma Scene article that I think you're alluding to. And so, I, I coined this term Trauma Scene because when we talk about Anthropocene, we are referring to the results of all of the stuff that has happened, and I don't see a lot of value in that. Like, It goes back to this typical problem that we have with the environmental literature. Let's talk about the problem, or let's talk about the problem. Well, we can talk about the problem as only one. It's not necessarily going to fix it by itself. So I thought it would be useful to coin a term that would invite people to consider Not the results of the problem, but the underlying root cause. And since I published that article, Awakening to the Trauma Scene, I think that was twenty nineteen, sometime. I've, uh, you know, when I wrote that article, I I framed it as though trauma was, if not the driver of the kinds of behaviors and habits that. Are, creating, or are causing people to wreak so much habit, havoc in the world, at least it was a big component. I think it's a component. I've backed off of my tendency to think of it as like this overwhelming thing. I think there's a lot of, of different things that factor into it. But that's where trauma scene comes in, understanding the idea that, or understanding that trauma that people can endure, can get passed down through generations and that it can alter people's behavior across generations. And so I allude to the idea that maybe there was some event or series of events towards the end of the last ice age that caused people to feel so foundationally unsafe that they were willing to resort to power over strategies that clearly Degraded the land that they lived in. They were willing to resort to those strategies in order to live because they felt so foundationally unsafe, and eventually that led to kind of the the origins of this conquest, you know, and colonization mindset that we very much, you know, we being people who look mm-hmm. like you and I, light complected, of um, yeah. at least partially European descent still very much are, are trapped in.
0: Yeah, I, I found it interesting because um, I, I've, I've seen many articles, but particularly right now in quite our divisive political space that, that anchor um, the polarization that we've seen in our society, the polarization that we see in our political system um, with a very strong correlation with trauma. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's I, I I don't dare to have an opinion of it because I haven't read or educated myself in this space. But I find it interesting how this kind of association between um, an approach or an attitude or a conquest or um, destruction or um, can be rooted in a destructive event, uh, and and can be associated with so many uh, happenings um, now. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: mean, ultimately, what happens is that it rewires people's nervous systems. So there's a one of the things I appreciate about about thinking of uh, modern society and its um, discontents as emerging from trauma is that trauma influences people's nervous systems and creates physiological, biological changes and so it's something that has a biological root it's not it's not something that we have to rely on some kind of you know woo woo metaphysics type stuff in order to use and the and the bio, biological roots are very much in people's vagus nerve and sympathetic uh sympathetic nervous system responses polyvagal theory right yes polyvagal theory yeah. to porges and and that's, you know, I mentioned I have COVID podcasts. I would love to get Stephen on and talk about this with him. You know, he's kind of laid hints that he thinks that this is a useful way to go. But I would love to talk with him about it.
0: Now Looking forward for that episode once it comes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric, uh, our time, unfortunately, is nearing the end, and I wanted to ask you one last question that's that recycled back to the beginning um, of our conversation, where you uh, shared your own path into um, what drives you and, you know, of sort of a coming back to yourself or the roots of yourself. Um, do you have any advice for for people that are now listening to us that are also maybe on the same path on an earlier stage? What helped you at the time and what type of advice would you have to offer them?
2: Yeah, one of the pieces of advice I would offer is uh, pay attention to yourself. And if you find yourself struggling under the emotional burden or the physical burden of the academic process, academic institutions, uh, be aware of that. don't swoop that under the rug because that destroys people. Uh, it really does. Yeah. and another thing i would say is uh, find other people that you trust and create feedback mechanisms amongst you where they can say, hey, you look like you're struggling because i i think back to myself when i was in my undergraduate years and i didn't understand how much I was struggling. Uh, But if I had had one person like give me a poke and say, hey, you look like you're having a rough time. Do you wanna talk about this? That would have been a game changer. Hmm. So having people like that in our lives, I think can be really important. And then I guess the last thing I would say, and maybe this is more of an overarching thing is when you enter the academic world, there's like a well-worn path that you can walk that maybe it goes through your undergrad to a job, maybe it goes through undergrad to a master's degree to a job, maybe it goes all the way to the doctorate and then to a faculty position, but there are well-worn paths that that institution is kind of designed to have you follow. Don't don't be afraid to abandon ship. Don't be afraid to step off those paths. Don't be afraid to know exactly what you want and then abandon ship as soon as you get what you want. I don't think there's anything wrong, for example, with doing the first year of your master's and then saying, okay, this is actually what I wanted. I don't need to do this thesis and all this other stuff. I'm good. Know when to stop. I guess, is is the moral of that story and know when to step off that path.
0: Yeah, and maybe make your own path inside, inside the system or outside if you so wish to. Yeah,
2: yeah, or, <laughs> or walk in circles for a while. It's all
0: good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure having you with us today.
2: Yeah, it was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.